Good morning, church. I asked Josh to do that song because it's the season to be looking at the Messiah. Um, We got a lot of ground to cover tonight. We're going to be looking at about 3,000 years of history, so I hope you're ready. Before we do that, though, we're going to—I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. We're going to show you a quick video. Um, Father, I thank you for what you have planned. Lord, I thank you that we have the revelation of your word. God, I pray that as we just get into it this morning, that you would open our eyes to the character of who you are. Lord, that you would just give us an excitement and a joy in this season for the Messiah has come. Lord, I pray that you would just... Bless all the giving this morning as we pour out. God, help us to be good stewards of it as, as your body. And that we just further for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Amen. Awesome. So if you are visiting this morning, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to be looking at the Messiah for the next couple weeks in preparation for Christmas. How's everybody doing with Christmas stuff? You good? Anybody in finals? All of my finals are due today, so it's going to be a long day. But, um, man, we have much to be joyful about. And I hope you'll see that as we start looking at uh, this in the Word today. If you're tired or you're at the end of your rope or you're just waiting for Christmas to be over because um, life is hectic and busy, um, I pray this morning that you'll find hope, that you'll find rest, and that you'll find a new picture of who this amazing God we serve is. But before, I, uh, before we start today, I just want to ask a quick question and get your feedback. When you hear the word Messiah, when you think of that word, what do you think of? Grace? What else? Peace, hope. Unconditional love. Yes, the Messiah. Now, um, Messiah is an incredibly old word. It's a, it's a Hebrew word which means anointed one or chosen one. And the gr- Greek equivalent to this word uh, in English is Christ. So, for example, to say Jesus 
Christ would be the same as saying Jesus the Messiah. In biblical times, anointing someone with oil was a sign that God was consecrating them, setting them apart for a particular role. So the anointed one or the chosen one is someone special who is God-ordained. In biblical times in the Old Testament, people that were anointed for the position, uh, they were anointed for the position of prophet, priest, and king. And there's three examples that I, I put into your outline this morning. Uh, one of them being that God told Elijah that he, uh, to anoint Elisha to succeed him as Israel's prophet. Aaron was anointed as the first high priest of Israel in Leviticus 8. Samuel anointed both Saul and David as kings of Israel in 1 Samuel 10 and 16. So all of these men held anointed positions, but in the Old Testament there was one predicted, this coming deliverer who would stand alone, chosen by God, to redeem His people from all the nations of the world. This deliverer of the Jews called the Messiah. And throughout the Scriptures we see a person who is, we see a people who are waiting in expectancy for this one to come. So today we're going to be going through and tracing who this Messiah is. Through the days of old, and looking into the Word, uh, we're going to see a picture not only of who this Messiah is, but the character of who Yahweh, Father God, is. This is going to be a cliff note version because there's over 300 prophecies in the Messiah and I only have 45 minutes. So, uh, but what I hope we can do this morning is solidify some foundational truths for you based out of the Word of God. So to begin... We're going to have to go all the way back to the garden, to the fall of mankind. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be flipping through it a lot. But I don't have all the verses in, in, in full on the screen, so you might want to follow along with me or make notes in your Bible as we go. Um, so if you want to open up to Genesis 3, that would be great. Um, if we're going to spend some time looking at the Messiah, I think it's only fitting that we understand why He had to come in the first place. So let's just do a quick refresher. In the beginning, God. That's a good refresher. God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. He gives dominion to man. He says, man, you take care of everything. You take care of the animals. You take care of the garden. You take care of the land. This is what I've given you. And it was very good. But things turn for the worse pretty quick. We turn around and we light the world on fire. In Genesis 3, the serpent comes and deceives Adam and Eve and leads them to believe that they would make better gods than the one who just breathed them out of dust. And so instead of trusting in God's love, humanity goes rogue and indulges itself in the one thing in the universe the Creator said to stay away from. And in an attempt to become like God, knowing good and evil, we become the very definition of sin in our disobedience. Mankind separated from their holy God through sin. Sin enters the world and fractures it. God shows up. Men and women hide themselves. We talked about this last, this last spring. I did a sermon on this, the nakedness of man. And God begins to pronounce judgment. Now the first thing that He does after saying, why are you hiding, is He looks at the snake and He judges the snake, the serpent, 
the devil, the embodiment of evil. And here's what he says to the devil. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, I don't know about you guys. Any of you have a UFC background, but I think that crushing a head wins over a bruised heel. Would you agree? This is what theologians, this verse is what theologians call the proto-evangelical. It's the pre-gospel. It's the first messianic prophecy we get in the Bible. It's not complex. There's no build-up to the cross. It's, there's nothing about atonement, nothing about uh, righteousness, nothing like that. Just God right in the middle of the fog of war. Man and woman, chain, nakedness, distress, world broken, He curses a serpent and He says, One will be born of woman. You will bruise His heel, but He will crush you. Now, I don't know what your thoughts about God are this morning, but I'm hoping to show you a picture of who He is through His Word. Because there's this huge misconception in this world that God of the Old Testament is this angry, vengeful God. God of the New Testament is love. This verse is an unbelievable picture of grace. In the middle of our rebellion against Him, in the middle of our attempt to usurp His throne, He he not only doesn't respond in destruction, but He speaks redemption. That He would actually intervene on behalf of us for His glory. The Bible tells us that from the very moment of the fraction of the universe, God begins to lay out His plan to send a Savior who would rescue us from the mess of our hearts that is spilled over into all of life. Genesis 3.15 is so important. We can't miss it. In a culture where people, where people look at God as a tyrant, angry, spiteful, disconnected, this verse shows us something completely different. And you might be thinking, wow, Eric, you are blowing this out of proportion, this verse. No, 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 I can't put enough stress on it. And what I hope to show you this morning is how weighty this statement was. The world is still burning when God says, I'm going to fix this. The new normal hasn't even begun to work when God says, there will be a man born of woman who will crush your head. Before He even addresses the sin of man, He looks at the serpent and He says, I will redeem you. I will redeem you, man. God reveals His heart to restore us through one. A promised Son. Now this verse isn't written to answer the question of who this man is, but rather to ask the question at all. This is what begins the whole question through history. Who is this Messiah? Who who is this seed that will crush the serpent's head? Let's move ahead a bit to Genesis 12. I should turn this on. To a man named Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Through your line, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God in the middle of man's rebellion says, I'm going to send one who will crush 
the head of the evil one. And now we move just a few chapters ahead and he says, actually, through the line of Abraham, I'm going to bless all the people of the world. And through the whole Old Testament, we see that God is the one who is unfolding the identity of this coming Messiah. In Genesis 17.9, God says to Abraham this, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant from his for his offspring after him. The covenant promise of blessing, the line of the Messiah, which is coming through Abraham, is now coming through Isaac. Move ahead. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, who is Isaac's son. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of the Moab and break down the sons of Sheph. A scepter in the Bible is a rod or mace used by a ruler as a symbol of royal authority. This one to come will not just be a mere man. This one to come will be a king. Scepter shows us that the one to come is a man who's coming through royalty. This scepter, this king, this Messiah will rise now out of Jacob. Do you see this? We think that God is disconnected. Are you seeing this? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now regarding the second part of this verse, the Moabs were a nation that stood opposed to God and His people. So... What this verse is pointing to is that the coming king will be the ultimate victor over all of his enemies. Do you see how Genesis 3 is a shadow of this verse? God is unfolding the revelation of the one to come. He's making it clear when he sees fit in his time for his glory, for our redemption. When I was in the Word this week, it hit me over and over and over and over again how blessed we are to have God's full revelation. That we live in a time of the new covenant. I mean, think about this. We did not live in 1800 B.C. having to wonder, what in the world is this talking about? Judah's just my brother. Or Israel's just my brother. Or Isaac is just my brother. What are you talking about a seed? What are we talking about a Messiah? Who is to come? Is it me? Is it my nephew? I mean, it was just like, who is this one we're expecting to come? Where is it going to rise from? God's revelation is complete. So at this point in our study, we see that this seed that is coming, who will crush the serpent's head, bring blessing to all the families of the earth, will come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this Messiah will be a king who will bring victory over all the enemies of the earth. Are you with me so far? Now, if you didn't know this Jacob, who we're at now, another, uh, another name for Jacob is Israel. God changes his name to Israel. So when it says, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, same person, okay? First one, probably speaking of David, who is an ancestor. Second one, definitely pointing to the Messiah. Uh, J Jacob has 12 sons, and these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So when, 
we're talking about the 12 tribes of Israel through the Old Testament, what we're saying is the 12 sons of Jacob. Every single one of them had their own tribe, and those became the tribes of God. Okay? So in Genesis 49, this is right before Jacob dies, and he's blessing his 12 sons. Each one of them, he's saying a specific thing, and then he gets to his son Judah, and he says this. He says, I skipped ahead, one. It says this, it's not on there. It says this, Genesis 49, if you want to look it up. 10 through 12, open your Bible, it's good for you. Uh, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath his feet. What did he just say? He said the scepter will not depart from Judah. What scepter are we talking about? The scepter that's going to come through Jacob. Okay? Until he who comes, until he whom it belongs shall come. This statement, he who... Sh- it, he to whom it belongs shall come is a super messianic statement. It comes from the word shalom, which means to whom it is we're speaking of. It's all capital, meaning this is about the Messiah. The scepter will not depart from J- Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath his feet until the Messiah comes. He's coming through the tribe of Judah. Clear? So, it says... He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choice branch. He will wash his garments in the vine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now I'm not going to tell you who this Messiah is yet because that's a, that's a cliffhanger. But I will tell you, when we did the God is Holy sermon and we looked at the characteristics of what Ezekiel and John saw in heaven, when they saw that his eyes were like fire and he had the appearance of white, His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Amazing picture. Now what in the world is he talking about tethering his donkey to a vine? Let me tell you. Wine is a symbol of prosperity and blessing. So what he's saying is he's expounding on the blessing that's to come through Abraham. He says not only will blessing come, but when he says... He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to a choice branch, he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Is What he's saying is the economy of the world will be flipped on its head so much that wine will be the new water. The thing that you're going to tie your donkey to when you're going to the store is going to be the vine. The thing that you're going to feed your donkey when you go up to the well, when he needs a drink, is going to be the choicest wines set aside for kings. Do you understand the blessing and prosperity this Messiah will bring? Do you get it? It's super cool. He's saying the thing you're going to wash your robe in, just go down to the wine press. What are you doing washing your robe in water? Go down to the wine press and dip your robe in wine and wash it. This prosperity that's coming is going to change the face of the earth. Now I know we're not talking about uh, who this Messiah is yet because it's a secret, but I will ask you this question. What is the first miracle that Jesus does? Unbelievable. Now at this point in history, we're at 1859 B.C. At the establishment of the 12 tribes of Israel. And a lot happens over the next hundred years. And I'm going to go through it very fast. So hold on to your pants. 
A nation of Israel gets thrown into slavery. God sent Moses to Pharaoh. The ten plagues. Israel is freed. The exodus begins. The Red Sea. God's presence descends on the Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments. The priesthood is established through the tribe of the Levites. Aaron becomes the first high priest. They make it to the promised land. There's giants. The people are afraid. They don't trust God. Forty years in the desert. Manna from heaven. Moses strikes a rock and water flows to quench the thirst of over a million people. Aaron dies. Moses blesses the twelve tribes. Moses dies. Joshua leads God's people into the promised land. The walls of Jericho come down. The sun stands still. The tribes receive their portion of the land. Israel turns away from God and is rebuked and defeated. The judges rise up. God has mercy on Israel and they turn away. God finds Gideon hiding and scared in a wine cellar and turns into a mighty warrior who leads 300 men against 150,000 Midianites and they're defeated. God has mercy on Israel and they turn away. Samson defeats the Philistines. God has mercy on Israel and they turn away. Samson and Deliah, God has mercy on Israel and they turn away. The twelve tribes of Israel turn on each other. Chaos ensues. Samuel is born. Israel loses the Ark of the Covenant. They get it back. God has mercy on Israel. Samuel judges them, saying to them, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, turning from foreign gods and serve the Lord alone, He will bless you. God has mercy on Israel, and they turn away. God returns to Israel. Israel demands a king. God says, I am your king. They don't want to hear it. Saul becomes the first king of Israel. God has mercy on Israel, and they're renewed. Saul's heart turns sour and shows his lack of character. Then a shepherd boy named David defeats Goliath and ultimately becomes the king of Israel in 1003 B.C. And guess which tribe he's from? Judah. 800 years of chaos, of humanity turning away from God, of slavery, debauchery, wickedness, worshiping foreign gods. And then David comes. There will be a seed that comes through the woman to crush the head of Satan, through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the tribe of Judah. He will be a king who will bring victory, and through him all the people of the earth will be blessed. And so here we get to David, raised up from a shepherd to the reigning king of Israel, and God makes a new covenant with him through the prophet Nathan. The Lord declares that you to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your flesh and your own blood. And I will establish His kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish a throne of His kingdom forever. I will be His father and He will be my son. When He does wrong, I will punish Him with a rod wielded by men with flogging afflicted by human hands but my love will never be taken from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you your house and your kingdom will reign forever before me your throne will be established forever now the reason I didn't put that in bold is because I want to clarify something because you're like okay he just said that he's going to beat the Messiah this prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah because it talks of a kingdom forever and men don't live forever. Okay? 
but it's talking about the Davidic line. It's talking about Solomon. It's talking about when Solomon turns away from God. So in prophecy, not only does it fulfill future events, but a lot of times, well, all the time, it, it dealt with what was happening right then. Okay, so in the context of their world, this made sense to them. But they also stood on it knowing that this kingdom has not been forgotten, that God did not forget His promises to Judah. So what this is doing right here is after 800 years, God is saying, I've not forgotten what I'm doing. I am, I am far from being absent. I'm in control and I will redeem you. Between just the royal line of promises to come through the tribe of Judah and God giving David the throne, we have 800 years that have just been validated. Do you see that? 800 years of chaos. God, David has received the baton. And so far we've traced over a couple thousand years in history and prophecies to get to this point. And what do we see? So far we see a God who's strictly, who isn't strictly vengeful against those who are disobedient, but a God of mercy who's working on behalf of those in rebellion to save and rescue this broken world for the glory of His name and salvation of our souls. Redemption is coming. That's what this is showing. Redemption is coming. You can turn away from me. You can worship other people. You can fall into slavery. Men can die. Kings can say they're God. But God is saying something. Slavery and death, wickedness and rebellion will not stand in the way of my promises. I will crush the serpent. But what will be the sign? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now this word virgin here simply means young maiden. I'm not going to be one that just tries to swoon you with words on a screen. So what this is saying is, Behold a young maiden shall conceive and bear a son. But I will ask you this question. The fact that it says in the beginning, Therefore God himself shall give you a sign should point to us that this is a pretty freaking miraculous sign. Does that make sense? And I don't know about you guys, but I'm sure that when my parents had me um, and people started coming in to the hospital after I was born, they weren't like, oh my gosh, there's three of you now. That's amazing. Right? There's biological reasons why I came into this earth. So what would be a miracle? How can bearing a son be a miracle? A miraculous sign from Yahweh. This is a sign. I'll tell you how. If a virgin conceives a child. See, one thing we need to note is that the Bible interprets the Bible. Now you might say to me, okay Eric, now you're just being crazy. But that's true for anything that we read. You read Lord of the Rings for like two sentences and you can tell me, all about the history of that story. No, no, no. No. The Bible interprets the Bible. That's how we have to look at these things. 
The Bible is 66 books telling one story. Verses must be read in light of one another. Even this text interprets itself in a way that would lead us towards believing what the New Testament clearly teaches about Mary's lack of physical sex before she conceives the secret Messiah. Namely, that her conceiving a child would be a miraculous sign. That's the miracle. That's the sign. Okay? Now, the second thing I want you to note in this text is that the Savior is one who will be familiar with poverty. Now, in good times, curds and honey would be this prosperous thing. We're just going to eat this and get fat and just be happy. But curds and honey, at the time of when Jesus was coming, was uh, the diet of a peasant. So we see that in this time, that this, this one that's to come isn't going to be born in a palace or born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's going to know curds and honey. He's going to have the diet of the peasant. He's going to know what it means to be hungry. He's going to be poor. Now, we can look at the historical data in realizing that in the New Testament at that time, when Mary and her family move, from Bethlehem, they move into a town called Nazareth, and that's where they grow up, right? Nazareth had a population of about 200 people. That's like more people than, uh, or I think Esther has a little bit more people than Nazareth. So, um, it's a tiny, small, impoverished place. So the prophet, the, the one that is to come, born of a woman, to crush the head of the Satan, Satan, to bless all the families of the earth, from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the tribe of Judah, in the line of King David, will be acquainted with poverty. Now let's look at Isaiah chapter 9. If you have your Bible, flip to this one, because this one is freaking packed with stuff, and uh, I wasn't able to put it all on the screen. I love this chapter. And I'm going to explain it to you because it's pretty amazing. So we're going to start on verse 1, go through 7. Listen to this. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious in the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now for those of you who don't uh, have a biblical understanding or a good grasp from the Bible yet... Jesus' ministry, who we're not talking about yet, it, uh, was predominantly done in Galilee for three years. It's this little circle of towns, okay? Bethlehem, I mean, not Bethlehem, uh, Nazareth, uh, Capernaum, these areas up in the northern crest of Israel. So just put that in your mind. So it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land deep... Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his oppressors, the rod of his the staff of, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His everlasting kingdom that God promised Him in Samuel 2. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do what He's promised to do. Now, (laughs) there's a huge turn in Isaiah 9. A huge turn. For the first time in prophetic literature, the promise of the Messiah to come, we find out that this man, or that this one is not a mere man who will inherit David's throne, drive out Rome, and become an earthly king. This is God Himself. Coming to fix what's wrong. To crush the head of the enemy, an enemy, the enemy, bless all families of the earth, that God is going to solve this Himself. Genesis 3, there will be one to come who will crush you. And that one will be God Himself. That one will be me. Do you, I mean, do you grasp the weight of Genesis 3? Before God ever says anything in judgment to man, He looks at the enemy and He says, I will crush you myself. The incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. God in the flesh is coming. Emmanuel. Now let me clarify this verse for you because it sounds like a bunch of hobgoblin unless you understand the context. But what this verse is talking about is super freaking awesome. Because Galilee is interesting. It's in the north part of Israel. And when Israel was invaded, particularly in the Old Testament, um, it talks about it quite a bit in Second Kings, It's almost always through the north because they're hemmed in with mountains and sea. As invading armies would make their way through northern Jerusalem, they would have to go straight through Galilee. All of this talk about darkness, battle tumult, marching in blood garments, going into fire, are references of the extremely violent history of Galilee. Galilee had been the point at which invading forces would rape, pillage, and burn to the ground on their way to lay siege to any other parts of Jerusalem. They would lay siege sometimes for years, and then on their way back defeated, they would go through again and rape, pillage, and burn it to the ground. Because the only thing worse than a military coming through to go to battle is a military coming back through defeated from battle. Do you get that? This is Galilee's history. History. What we find happening in this text is this dark spot has become ground zero for the light of the world. This dark, cursed spot in Israel's history becomes ground zero for the destruction of oppression, violence, slavery, and justice. Which is why all of a sudden he's saying a people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Nothing good happens in Galilee. You don't pick up your, your 
your family in your little van again and drive down to the Sea of Galilee and have a family vacation. At that point, if you were there, it probably wasn't too good of a situation. Okay? These aren't people in just a rough season. This is a place marked with centuries of death, centuries of violence, centuries of lack of safety, of lack of stability. You're there probably because you're poor. You're too poor to be anywhere else. Yet this becomes the place where God says, He will come. I mean, look at this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on Him the light has shone. He will come here. Amazing. And now I want you to see something else. In verse 4 of this text, it says, For the yoke of His burden and the staff of His shoulders and the rod of His oppressors you have broken as on the day of Midian. What are they talking about with Midian? Now the day of Midian refers to the day that Gideon defeated the army of the Midianites in Judges 6 and 7. The Midianites had around 150, some even say up to close to 300,000 men. 150,000 men. And God finds Gideon scared in a wine cellar, trying to hide, and he says, you will be the one who will be raised up to lead out the enemy of Israel. And so, at the beginning, Gideon starts with 32,000 men, and then God says to him, let go all the men who are afraid, and 22,000 leave. 10,000 are left. And then God literally says in Judges 6, that's too many. Go down to the water, and the men that say the specific thing that he, that he told them that they had to say, those ones you will take with you. You know how many people he was left with? 300. 300 men. And in Judges 7, they destroy the Midianites against 150,000 people. Okay? That would be like the population of Fairbanks, North Pole, Esther, Isleson, Sultra, Fox, and another Fairbanks combined against half of the people in this room. You grasping that? So what he's saying is, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders and the rod of his oppressors you have broken as on the day of Midian. Gideon and 300, a shadow of what's to come, except God's not going to need 300 and it's not just going to be the Midianites. It's going to be the world and it's going to be a son. You see that? It's amazing the pictures we get in the Word. That God would use 300, but he's like... You think this is tough, Gideon? You think that this is conquering? You have no idea what's to come. There will be one to come. For a child is born. A son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. There will be one to come who will crush the enemy once and for all and will make right everything humanity has done wrong and will bring everlasting peace. The Bible even gives us His birthplace. There's a few verses I I wasn't able to get to. There's a couple other after this, but I thought that this is just cool. In Micah 5, 2, it says this, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler over Israel, whose coming forth is of, of old, from ancient days. This one to come 
this one to come has been around before anything existed. In Zechariah, I mean, there's just, I just wish I had time to get into this stuff. There are so many things. It says that he will be, uh, that he will be oppressed, that he will be beaten in Jeremiah. In Zechariah and Malachi, it talks about how one will come before him like in days of old who will bring the way to his coming. It's talking about John the Baptist and that he will come into the temple and when he comes to the temple before he does, he'll be riding on a donkey. All of this is in the Old Testament. But how... Is God in the flesh, the Son of God, going to come and crush the head of the enemy, bless all the families of the earth, and eradicate oppression, slavery, injustice, and the like, and bring everlasting peace? Why don't you flip over to Isaiah 53? And I'm going to try to get through this chapter without weeping. I'm going to start up in actually 52.13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings, shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told they them they see and that which they have not heard they now understand who has believed what he has heard from us and whom has the arm of the lord been revealed for he grew up before you like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men will hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by god and afflicted but he was pierced He was pierced for our transgressions. And He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquities of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that was before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as if for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. 
and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, yet his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, for his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's you and me. He shall bear our iniquities, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercessors for the transgressions. What we're seeing in Isaiah 53 is how God in the flesh will crush the head of the serpent, will bless the families of the earth, destroy oppression, shame, injustice, and slavery forever. That God the Son, Jesus Christ, will come, put on flesh, humble Himself, walk among us. He will bear our griefs. He will pay for our iniquities. He will make atonement for our rebellion. And He will count to us a righteousness that is not ours, but rather that is His. What we just learned now, once again, is we're not talking about a mere man that ascends a human throne. We're talking about something bigger. We're talking about the eternality of Jesus Christ. He has always been and He will always be. He's not a moral philosopher. He's not a teacher. And He's not a good ruler. He's God. And He came to save us. And from the moment man fell, God has been sending a call out saying, Come back to me. I will redeem you. Genesis 3, you shall bruise his head, he will die. You shall bruise him, but he will crush you. From the very beginning of our sin, our rebellion, fracturing our relationship with God, that overflowed out of us into systems that are built but broken. The promise repeats over and over and over again of a Savior who is coming, who is going to crush the enemy, who is going to bless all the families of the earth, who will right our relationship with God and enable us to have a relationship with God that's not built on religious practice, but on knowing Him ourselves. Remember the communion service, Jeremiah 31, 31, the covenant that God established for His kingdom, that you would know me, and I would know you, that you shall be my people, and I should be your God. We read that this Savior on top of that will bring about ultimate destruction of darkness, slavery, and oppression. That He will institute a reign of peace, that our sins will be atoned for once and for all, and that He will account us as righteous even though we're not. We will have a new ruler over our hearts, and we will be saved from our sins. That is a promise. Now, I know you've all been wondering this whole time, who are you talking about, Eric? She, Mary, will give birth to a son. 
And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place. When he says all this, do you understand the weight of that? All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Worship team, do you want to come forward? I don't know what you think about God this morning, but I hope looking through His Word, like we did, that and I just pray that God would begin to reveal the character of His love for you. Because the redemptive story, the fact that we know love, know love is this, that we would know the Father's heart through, through Christ's death, does not begin in Matthew. It doesn't begin at the cross. It begins in the garden. That the very second we turned and tried to burn this world to the ground. God said, from the ashes, I will redeem you. And now one thing I want to do is I want to leave you with this, okay? Because a lot of us live our lives searching for freedom. What will save me? And we turn to so many things. Let me tell you something. Your Messiah has come. And He's no longer a baby boy in a manger. He's the King of Heaven. And one day He will come home and He will establish everlasting peace. And when He comes home, He's going to come home and He's going to be the man. It says that He has a tattoo on His thigh, that He's going to be riding a white stallion, and He's going to come home and out of His mouth will come a sword and His eyes will be like a flame of fire and He will crush the enemy. Okay? So, I can't remember his name, but I'm ripping this off. There was a first century father that said this. I think his name was Dio Christiolium. And I know that I'm jacking that up, but he'll forgive me in heaven. But he said this. He said, freedom is not doing whatever we want to do. Or having the ability to do whatever we want to do. So many people get into these debates being like, did God predestine us? Did God predestine people for hell? Do I actually have the choices? Just stop. You want to know what freedom is? What free will is? Freedom is knowing the revelation of the God who's calling you into redemption and laying your life at His feet and saying, take everything I am. Because everything outside of that relationship is oppression. Everything outside of us answering to the call of God that He's been giving and promising since the foundation of the world when we crumbled this earth to the ground. Everything outside of that is bondage. So if you're feeling weak, if you're feeling tired, if you're feeling enslaved, let me introduce you to your Messiah. And let me ask you, maybe for the first time in your life, to stop trying to be your own God. In the garden, one of the biggest lies that the serpent did is he made God out to be harsh. He made his rule out to be harsh, and he made God look like a tyrant. Believing the lie, humanity reject God's rule. By rejecting this, we reject the knowledge of God. And through time, unfolding revelation, God has been re-
learning us into who he is. So, I got to stop talking. In your outline, prophecies fulfilled. I, I put that on the back. This week, open up this word. It's amazing. It's going to blow your mind if you get into it, okay? This is the revelation of God. I gave you the prophecies fulfilled to look up in the New Testament to just solidify uh, the fact that the Messiah coming is Christ. And I pray that as you get into the Word this week that God speaks to you and draws you into a clearer picture of His love. Next week, we're going to go from the birth to the cross. Jesus, thank You for who You are. Lord, we have so much joy because our Messiah has come. There is much to be grateful for. Lord, even in the chaos of life, if we live this life poor and broken in ashes, we will still rise again into the presence of Almighty God. I thank you for the redemptive story that you've laid out through your word, that your promises are true, that through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, you have sent king and that being your son himself and i pray that revelation would just overwhelm us if you guys want prayer if if you have questions anything i think there's going to be some people up front to pray with you this morning um and yeah just i invite you to come meet us and meet and greet at the end as well also this saturday night the star bethlehem movie come and watch it it's an hour documentary we just looked at the uh the historical prophecies that fulfilled the coming of Christ, the star of Bethlehem looks at what the star was, and it will blow your mind. It's done scientifically through NASA research, and it's not corny at all. It's completely legit. I would not waste your time if it was. Okay? Bring your friends. It's not condemning. It's not this weird Christian movie. You're like, oh, my friend's going to be weirded out. Bring them. It will blow their mind. Okay? Saturday night, if you have kids, they can watch the VeggieTale movies at 6. Go... Do crafts. Bethlehem movie starts at 7. Have a good week, guys. Oh, to be loved by Jesus. Oh, to be loved by Him. Oh, to have joy and peace with Him. Oh, to be loved by Him. He knows the names of my sorrow. He knows the names.
Jesus. 